Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and today I'm here with my co-host Michelle. Hi Michelle. Hi Stephanie. And I'm also here with our producer Jimmy who begged us to sit in on this week's I podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're here today um, at quite short notice to discuss the latest um, winner of the Nobel Prize which was announced um, I think it last was week. last week, late last week, which is um, Kazuo Ishiguro. And um, my hero. I, yeah, obviously Jimmy's hero and mm. my, one of mine too. I'm not sure about you, Michelle. Yeah, look, I actually think that might be how our friendship started because I seem to remember yes, it being one right. of the we very were... first lengthy yes. conversations we had <laughs> was discovering that we both idolised, revered, mm. loved Remains of the Day. Today, yes. Yeah. It's still one of my favourite books to this day. Yeah. Something. So, in, in my view, the perfect novel, The Remains of the Day, just so beautiful and uh, brilliant. It's, it's, and subtle and lovely, yes. It's, it's the perfect iceberg, isn't it? Because, you know, so much, you, you don't realise that so much is building up until you get to that end. And, and then it's almost like you've been, I felt as though I'd been gutted. Yeah, oh, that, I was going to say gutted. That, <laughs> that ending is so heartbreaking. And I've spoken to, you know, just random strangers because I always bring up Ishiguro with random strangers. Apparently. Hi, uh, I'm Jimmy. Yeah. Do you like Do you Ishiguro? Like Ishiguro? <laughs> yeah. And what struck me is the ones who have read um, The Remains of the Day always remember that one line towards the end of the novel that just you know, broke everybody's heart. Don't spoil it. Yeah, I won't spoil it, but there's a line there, and they always quote from it. And, yeah. uh, and it surprised me because when I read that novel, that line just, uh, I think I had to put it down and just sort of silently wept. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, loudly wept. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Michelle would have been loud. He's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it so was so I beautiful it, movie. Yeah. I take it we're all pretty happy with this choice of the Nobel Prize committee. So thrilled. I, I was over the moon. Actually, it was interesting because um, I, I found out about it through my sister, who uh, is a reporter for a Japanese paper. Mm. And the Japanese were so sure that uh, Murakami was going to win. Yeah, well, he, he's the odds-on favourite almost every year. Yeah, uh, yeah. Th- they were actually uh, on the street ready to put up the sign to say congratulations. Wow. Murakami, yeah. Uh, and then a different Japanese author was announced. Yeah. And their reaction was, who? <laughs> yeah, I think he's a writer that's certainly more famous in the Western world than in Japan. He is. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that uh, the Japanese have now sort of appropriating him, so to speak. Um, he's been published in Japan, but not particularly successfully. Yeah. Um, but what the Nobel Prize did, which I thought was just absolutely fantastic, is that the day it was announced, uh, bookstores were receiving 200,000 uh, copy order of mm. single books of his just from this one mm. prize alone. And that, that to me was fantastic because I thought, you know, well, great. He's, he's, you know, the world is beginning to take notice of this amazing author. That to me is what the Nobel Prize is kind of all about because the Nobel Prize traditionally has been given to a lot of kind of um, non-English speaking, very little known writers mm. and that has propelled them into the mainstream. I'm thinking of people like Patrick Modiano, Svetlana. I love Pat- um, no, I actually love Patrick Modiano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Svetlana Alexandrovich, something and like that. Yep, yeah, yep, yep. She um, a fabulous part. Yeah, yep. exactly. And I mean, these are people who... Uh, you know, it w- English-speaking audiences, some people would know of, but not many, and and they became huge bestsellers because of the Nobel Prize. I think Ishiguro was quite different in that he's had a lot of commercial success mm. as well. Two two films made of his of his novels, Never Let Me Go and The Remains of the Day. Mm. Um, so I think he is he already had a bit of a high um, um, kind of profile, profile as a, as a novelist, but still not you know 
as huge as, as as you might expect. And I actually read an interesting article, I think it was in the New Republic, the day before the announcement of the prize, and it was all about the different odds of like who's the who are the odds, who's the mm. dark horse. Apparently, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but apparently <laughs> apparently um Philip Roth waits in his agent's office every oh, no. year no. waiting for the phone call to tell him oh, that he's no. won. I really hope that he never wins oh. now just because I think that's a level of arrogance that, like, I cannot. Sorry, Philip Roth, but... Well, compared to you know, Ishiguru, who was actually in some sort of doubt as to the veracity of his win because well, he, he, he hadn't... He, he said it was... He thought it was fake news. <laughs> that, that Hashtag was, yeah. fake news. No, because um, when, when he was told about it uh, by his agent, he said, that sounds like fake news to me. Yeah. Uh, and he said it himself in an interview that it wasn't until the BBC rang him up um, for an interview that he actually really believed that it was true. Yeah. He, he thought, you know, because I don't think um, his name was ever mentioned. Anywhere. His name wasn't mentioned. I mean, so no. many, this um, New Republic kind of um, write-up about mm. it um, mentioned, I don't know, 20, 30 writers yeah. and gave different odds and M- different kind Murakami of... Murakami was a favourite. Murakami... Uh, Atwood was another yeah, favourite. Yeah, Margaret Atwood. There was a... Um, uh, there was an African writer whose there name There was a, yeah, an African me. writer whose, yeah, I can't remember his name either, but there was quite a few... Um, authors that were mooted, and his name was nowhere on the mm. list. Which is quite interesting because it made me look up the, the history of the Nobel Prize, and apparently they keep quite a lot of secrecy around who is you know, the main contenders. And in fact, they, they suppress the nominees for 50 years. That's how... Oh, how know, fantastic. I know. Oh, so it's, it's kind of like... It's like a state secret. Yeah, it is. And I thought, gee, that's really interesting because... Um, if these... you reveal this information, they will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, but it does, it, it keeps a mystery around the workings of it. And I guess it also generates a really, it creates a really different sort of prize to say the Booker Prize, where mm. it's all about sort of the publicity and the people who are long-listed and then short-listed mm. are sort of uh, as much a part of that um, sort of machine mm. as, uh, mm. you know, sort of the, the, the eventual winner. Um, whereas I guess it creates a sort of a, a really enigmatic um, you know, sort of a process, which I kind of like. And because it's about um, the writer's career, it's not about a novel in particular. Mm. So mm. it's not necessarily somebody who's, you know, got the new hot novel out that everyone's talking about. It's it's, it's a career prize. So it's you expect it to be somebody quite established, but at the same time it could be anyone across the world in any language, in any form. Mm. Um, so there's a huge pool and it's, it's quite, it, it's sort of just, drops out there in the media the way they release it and then all of a sudden that person is everywhere it's it's quite um it's quite exciting i think yeah, yeah. Because yeah. because I followed um, when I found out it was, and really I follow these sort of things. But when I found out it was Ishiguro, I pretty much went online and started reading almost every single article I could on this. Um, and uh, it was quite interesting because the minute it was announced, all these um, journalists then rushed to his house, mm. and he was saying, "How on earth did they find my address? Like, how did they know where I live?" <laughs> like, he became a celebrity almost you know overnight. So That's to speak. so cute. Yeah, you know, even though he had written these marvelous books, and you know, um, people in the literary world have. I loved him as a as a writer. Suddenly, mm. because of this one prize, he gained worldwide attention. Yeah, yeah. and that's the really great thing. And if we if we can just backtrack for a little bit to last year, that was what irritated me. <laughs> I have I have never talked about my Bob Dylan thoughts on this podcast before, but here's my opportunity. That's what really irritated me about last year's prize. Why Bob Dylan? Everybody knows Bob Dylan. He has had. Award after music award after music award after music award. You know, he doesn't need his profile raised. He's not, you know, he's he's done very well in the musical world. He's a multi-billionaire, I'm sure. Give it to somebody working in literature, please. 
I don't care if you your glory days Nobel Judge Committee um, were in the 60s and you finally remember when you were cool in the 60s. <laughs> Give it to somebody who's actually in the literary world. Thank you, not Bob Dylan. Okay, now that that's off my chest, <laughs> you made up for it this year. Well, I was actually reading up about that. Um, uh, there was a report, I think it was in The Guardian, and that was quite interesting because they were comparing the reactions to you know, yeah. Dylan's win last year and Ishiguro's win this year. Uh, and what they said was that uh, when it was announced, you know, Dylan got the Nobel, yeah. there was a lot of... Um, he was very silent about it for quite a while. The, yeah, and then he plagiarised sure his speech from Yeah, Spartans. then they took away he plagiarised his, his speech from, <laughs> from a site which we will not mention because we keep telling our students not to go to that website. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and then they compared it to Ishiguro, who uh, was so um, humble... Yeah, about the entire thing. I think he, I think he called it you know one of the greatest honor um, mm. to be bestowed, uh, and they compare the type of work that was also being released as well, which I thought was you know quite interesting yeah. because um, Ishiguro, in a way, with the current political climate, is actually you know, one of the best choices to, to yeah. choose in the moment because he's he's a writer who really deals with the everyday politics, not you know not the mass military politics of the day, but the everyday politics. And at the moment, I think, especially with, with Brexit and everything yeah. happening, Ishiguro was in a way quite a, a firm message I think, yeah. to send for, for the Nobel Committee. It's, it's also the particular way that he deals with the really profound sort of ethical questions mm. of our Mm. Of 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 our, our time, you, you know, because when you when you think about, um, you know, sort of the the the, the arcs of his story and the the, the sort of um, the explorations that they in, invite, whether it's uh, you know sort of the uh, the mortal coil mm. of, mm. of remains of the day, or, or or whether it's what it means to be human um, in uh, Never Let Me Go um, or the, the, the Buried Giant where you, you get that sense of, 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 of the myths that we deliberately suppress in order to make, um, make a path um, today, mm. uh, you, you can sort of see the really sort of profound thinking and the subtle way that he invites us to think rather than to react, mm. um, you know, he, he's he, he's not a polemical writer. No, no. He's he's a, a writer who invites, I think, uh, sort of meditation and mm. stillness and, and contemplation of things from a place of, of 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 reflection and probably a place which we don't arrive at enough today in this frenzied, yeah, you know, sort of reactionary yeah. world. And and I think that's one of the most beautiful things yeah, about I what mean, he does. W- yeah. Whenever I recommend an Ishiguro book to, to a friend, I always say, you know, Ishiguro is a writer who presents you with a very comp- seemingly simple but actually quite a complex issue. Yeah. And he doesn't give you an answer or solution. He just simply presents you with the complexity of this issue and then just <laughs> sort of dumps you hit on your lap and sort of say, what do you think now? Well, you know, we talk about in English, don't we, when we're teaching um, about reading the gaps, mm. about what's not there and what's implied and what you have to kind of think about and, and come to yourself. And that's what he always strikes me as doing. Um, he never he never says to you, you know, well, this is the way you need to think about this. He just he just gives it to you in this kind of beautiful, subtle way and, and it's all there for you to piece together. I mean, that's the thing that strikes me so wonderful about The Remains of the Day is what's not said. Nothing is ever said. It's mm. all repressed. It's all underneath. It's all something that you need to kind of figure out yourself. So I think he's a really um, a clever writer, a writer that asks you to be clever too. 
to think to think through things in a kind of more complex way than perhaps we're used to. There's this lovely stillness to his prose. Mm. Um, forgive me for this, what I'm just about to say, but I'm actually just thinking about the image of the Karate Kid too. You know, the <laughs> movie with the with the serpent, you know, oh, sort yeah. of ba- and and the balancing on one leg with the with the with the um, sort of that the crystalline, which is just just the, the the stillness um, <laughs> of of that moment. It's it's it's, it's become a real touchstone for me. Um, but but it is. It, it, That's not where I was expecting this. No, you weren't. That's go. why. But I warned you in advance. Yeah, you I, did. I warned yeah, you yeah, in yeah. advance that there is that stillness um, and beneath which there is great depth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's interesting you should say that because um, I think, you know, one of the books that we've chosen to, to look at for uh, this podcast, in Artists of the Floating World, mm. uh, deals with a lot of that stillness. Um, and one of the things that I was actually really fascinated by um, this book in particular is, is it seems to me that Shigeru is very much influenced in this story anyway by Japanese cinema. Mm. And there's this sense of, uh, I read this book almost like watching a Japanese, mm. a, a classic Japanese film, like either Yasuji Ozu or Mizuguchi or you know, Narise. Uh, and there's that same sense of um, stillness that you're referring to. You know, he's, he's very contemplative, he's very meditative. And his characters are, I don't know how to describe this effectively, but they're almost foolishly wise. Is there anything I can think of? You know, they, yeah. they seem so wise and yet so foolish at the same time. And it's it's sort of um, the I, I reread this on the weekend, and um, it just struck me too how this world of politeness and the way that that the kind of Japanese um, ethic of of politeness and mm. care and communality um, allows him to do a lot with his characters, where they are constantly revealing and not revealing things at the same time. It's it's never quite clear. You have to kind of do a, a lot of the work, as I was saying mm. before, to figure out exactly what's happening between the characters. It's such a mm. subtle, still book. And yet it's asking these massive questions about, mm. you know, people's implication in, you know, war crimes and, yeah. and the spreading of propaganda and Japanese militarism and fascism and all of this. And, and I think also the way they're so polite yeah. uh, about brutalising yeah. one another. You know, effectively, I mean, even with the, um, uh, the oldest daughter, Setsuko, when she said to her father, you know, he's like, no, I, I don't mean to be to be rude, father, but you know, you know, yeah. should you consider about you know the your history and how maybe you should um, uh, sort of address that with the people so that you know you don't affect you know, uh, Noriko's marriage. marriage. You know, um, effectively, basically telling her father, you know, she he needs to hide his past, yeah, because it's shameful uh, and it's going to affect his children's happiness in, in the future. Yeah, and you know. in fact, possibly did. And, and in fact, possibly the, did, yeah, you know, and, and, and that's the part that we don't... Um, sort of marriage. Yeah, and that's the part and, we're not quite um, sure about at the same time. Uh, and it's just that language for me is, is fascinating, maybe because, you know, I come from a similar Asian background where that type of language is very prevalent. Mm. You know, we say things, you know, quite brutally, but in such a lovely, polite, polite way. well-mannered way that you don't quite see the brutality of what they're insinuating, what they're implying there. He talks about that in what he's done too in that way, mm. where it's always um, about, you know, the mistakes or the choices that he makes, and it's not quite clear what those are. And until you figure out later on that he's been involved in this spreading of propaganda for, mm. you know, a brutal Japanese regime, yeah. um, and that he's been, you know, he's implicated in all these sorts of terrible mm. things... But 
because of the way he talks about it. And that he had terribly hurt his student. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it's always underneath the language. Yeah. The language doesn't um, reflect the violence that he's actually done. It sits underneath it. Mm. I also love the way that Ishiguro uh, sort of turns on the head, the sort of the prevailing way of understanding the human and the world, you know, the, the, the subject in the world, because what we have is this incredible density around the the, 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 the character, you know, around Ono and, and, and this, this, this sort of solidity um, while, you know, and as that magnificent title captures while uh you know sort of the world is is is, is just literally uh, sort of flowing by and and i i love i love that mm. um you know i feel that because I, I think he 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 sort of moves against uh you know sort of the prevailing sort of representation of subjectivity as as fluidity and, and as constant change and and all of those uh, sort of different uh, selves that we are and he he's sort of unafraid to to present this 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 character who's the the, the density of his body and his aging and uh, his his sort of um, complete and utter um, I guess helplessness as 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 the world changes frames mm. Mm. Um, and I think also the, the the tragic irony of that title mm. you know artist of the floating world what he wanted to do and what he was as an established artist was not uh, a depictor of floating worlds he wanted to depict um, the real world so to speak you know, he wanted to be a political mm. artist uh, and then by the end of his life it turns out that he is and artists of the floating world because mm. that real world was in actuality just another floating mm. world. You know, and, it, and it floated out and it floated just out as out that of, pleasure kind of milieu floated yeah. out. Yeah, and it's, it, it's so tragic and heartbreaking and beautiful and wise at the same time. That, you know, mm. And that helplessness in the face of that and the, and the fact that he, in in every respect he, he is the, the, the artist because he has, you know, the exceptional skill, he has the training, he has all of those qualities and yet none of that uh, will actually hold fast mm. um, when the, when the world is shifting beneath your feet, and mm. that's and that's beautifully um, kind of captured in that scene when his grandson is saying to him, "But where's your art? Mm. You're an artist," and he's not, and he's surrounded by other Japanese art, but he's not, mm. he can't display any of his art because his art is too deeply politically implicated. Um, it's too, you know, he can't display it in this post-war world, and so his his art has kind of floated off too because it's it's no longer something that can be celebrated, rightly so, because of of the kind of um, awful brutality that it was implicated in. Yeah, and um, also playing with that um, idea of the responsibility of art. Yeah. In in such a political climate, I think it's um, and the role of art and the role too, of art. Yeah. yeah, I think you know one of the um, issue that the novel depicts so well is that young idealism, uh, that idea of wanting to do something with the best of intention that turned out to be you know, one of the most horrible things you could have done you know, yeah. further down the track, you know, thinking that you were um, uh, a nationalist, thinking that you, you actually you know, believing in your country and then finding out that you 
was supporting a, a terrible evil yeah. that was happening at the same time. I think that, that kind of realisation for me is so yeah. heartbreaking. But the slipperiness of, 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 of country and of nation, you yeah. know, and that's what you see. And what country and nation mean, mm. yeah. Because, you know, sort of that idea of a, a, a sort of a, a, a patria, of, of, you know, sort of, a, of, 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 of harnessing oneself, and it was very much, um, you know, sort of a, a patriarchal mm. um, sort of world, uh, is inevitably um, is 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 in, in, is is inevitably uh, an act of of sort of grasping onto shadows or grasping onto mm. liquid because it it, it, it just the the that it it is only a, a, a sort of a projection and that's beautifully symbolised again in the way that um, he takes you through the city because he tells you mm. about you know what was here and what wasn't oh, yes. and what was and you know you can see the vestige of of this pleasure zone. Um, but then it's been replaced oh. by this and you can see this old building but now it's rubble um, mm. and like the way that the city reflects that kind of floaty um, ephemeral nature of what it means to be in to be a country what that country signifies to the people the fleetingness yeah it? it's just it's, the fleetingness yeah all of these certainties are just are now rubble bulldozed and something mm. else is going on yeah and it's it's something that I think he he mentions to the younger generations too. Yeah. And, you know, the, the belief you have now, yeah, sure they're right now, but you know, how long will they be right? And for me, what struck me about this novel is is how wise that seems. You know, it's almost like we're hearing advice from somebody who has lived through quite a lot uh, and is telling a generation he knows will not listen to him. Yeah. But he's going to tell that anyway because it was the same thing that was told to him and he didn't listen to it. But it's it, there is this constant cyclical nature mm. um, that for me is just it's it, it's sad, but at the same time um, I think it's very wise because I think it makes us question what we really believe and um, the certainty the certainty yeah. that you know we, we're so certain about some of our beliefs sometimes that we don't often question that and what if like him uh, we may be wrong. And what do we find out yeah. later? I mean, for me, that's a, it's a terrible, brutal idea. And there's that open question, isn't there, of whether he actually does realise that this is wrong? Mm. You know, what at what level is he taking responsibility for what yeah. he did? Because he seems to vacillate over the course of the yeah, whole, doesn't I, he? I think parts of him believes that because of uh, the best intentions that he had, mm. it wasn't wrong on that level. Mm. But I think the eye-opening scene for him was you know, when he... Realized what he had done to you know his his favorite student whose whose name completely escapes me right now, mm. um, and had the poor guy imprisoned and tortured because he had reported this guy as a, a suspicious or unpatriotic mm. person, uh, and as a result almost ruined uh, a life. Yeah. And I think, and you don't know to what extent this is just a one once off, yeah. or what extent he actually has been implicated in a lot of this. Yeah, and I think that's that's the brilliance of Ishiguro's writing because he doesn't it doesn't make anything. Um, sort of solid, I yeah. guess. Everything is left for you to try to figure out whether did this really happen, did it happen? I mean, he plays a lot with memory yeah. in, in this book and um, that sort of fluid nature of memory. That's actually something that reminds me of Margaret Atwood about mm. his writing because he writes old people, older people and quite old people very well and he seems mm. to have this like insight I mean he's not particularly old himself he's middle aged but he wrote this when he was quite young I think it was like 30 yeah this, this came out in 86 which is you know 31 years ago mm. um, so he, he's one of these writers that just ca- seems to capture that kind of older kind of consciousness and, and that kind of mixture of like guilt about 
the things that you've done wrong in your life as well as that um, contemplative kind of tone as well as the, the ambiguity about um, whether he has come to some kind of um, responsibility um, about what he's done. Margaret Atwood does this too. She writes old people very well and he strikes me as somebody who writes age well. I, 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 I keep feeling just a slight twinge when, when and I'm, I'm trying to think through why I feel it when you talk about, you know, sort of the degree to which he realises mm. responsibility. And I, I sort of feel, and I'm trying to think why that, that sort of idea uh, sort of makes me feel uncomfortable within the framework of, of, this, of this novel. And, and I, I think it has something to do with... Um, you know, I, I think it has something to do with that uh, sort of solitary nature of, you know, sort of, I know it, it, throughout that book there is something so profoundly solitary about, you know, sort of his movement around the house. We, we start to see him almost come back into the family with, with the, the sort of the, 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 the aiding, the arrangements of, 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 of the marriage and you, you sort of see these uh, sort of connections building. But I, I sort of wonder whether, you know, it's essential to the reading of, of, of this or, or essential to the, the fabric of, of, of an Ishiguru novel that um, because uh, that sort of trajectory of, of gaining self-awareness would in some sense reinstate a certain solidity and a certain moral standpoint that um, it, 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 it becomes essential to realise that uh, sort of any f- that form of uh, of sort of coming to an awareness uh, is actually part of a larger project that I think is outside of yeah. You know, I mean, so I, it doesn't novel, ask you to take a kind of you know mm, is you know, a moral be, stance on him yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I think I don't think it actually asks you to do yeah. that. Mm. What I think it actually does is it actually complicates it. Yeah. Because while I was reading the book, um, there are parts of me that gets very um, lost in this world and lost in that unreliable narrator that he you know, does so well. Mm. And I think by the end of the, the novel, I'm not quite sure about half of the things that the narrator has, has told me about himself. You know, uh, And that really came about that final scene with uh, Setsuko in, mm. in the park where uh, he said, you know, but you were the one who told me to go and fix all this. And she says, I'm sorry, Father, but, you know, maybe my memory's really bad, but I have no... I don't remember telling you to do anything of that. And, in fact, your behaviour at the Miyai was very odd. We all spoke about it. And I thought, well, what on earth is going on here? Especially since he's he's told us that that event that is event what... is what's the smooth, catalyst, yeah. yeah. it's what smoothed the way to the marriage. But then we're getting all these reports now from other characters that that was an odd behaviour and that, in fact, um, the family never saw his past mm. as, as an issue at all. So are these the the guilt of an yes. old man that's yeah. been played out here and manifested and so he's working, he's acting out on this or is this the reality of the situation? And, you know, the, the, he plays with this, um, the reality of truth mm. so beautifully that by the end of it I'm, I'm left <laughs> in a way in a very similar situation if I ever have a fight with my friends or family where I'm not quite sure who said what and who yeah. was responsible for what. And that's and how memory what. works, isn't it? And that's it? how memory yeah, works. He, and he talks about that. He says, you know, I think it's gone, it went this way and that he said something like this, mm. but I'm not quite sure perhaps it might be my age. Mm. But I agree, Michelle, I don't think it asks you to take a moral stance on whether he's taken responsibility. I think that that's an open question. 
and they, and he never asks you to resolve it or asks you to what to what extent is responsibility you need it. And instead, you're actually asked to consider one step further, which is what is going on when a character does reach that level of mm. of awareness. You know, there's a sort mm. of an almost an, an implicit moment where you start to realise that every time you sort of have have gone along with that path, and that you have actually helped to re-establish a certain mm. sense of solidity and order that may you know that really is that um that illusion of 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 the of the, of the world that we live in you know that, that because we want to yeah. we want the, the solidity and i think that there's listening to him speak about uh you know because he's often asked about uh you know sort of um nagasaki he's he's asked uh, you know sort of about big questions um uh, there's something very uh pragmatic in the way that he talks about these things, in in the sense that, um, rather than idealistic, do, do you know what I mean? That that in in some sense, most sort of cultures are, are are living with so much forgetting because if they don't, they they can't they can't function, and and that you know sort of so much conflict that arises is because of the digging up of memories. Yeah, and um, you know he does an interesting thing with that in, in relation to the Americans and the American influence over Japan because even though he kind of he's writing about this brutal kind of Japanese militaristic um, regime mm-hmm. that um, led to the the World War, War not led to you know but was implicated in World War Two, um, he's also critiquing that Americanization of Japanese culture because he he reacts quite strongly to his grandson you know talking about Popeye and and mm-hmm. cowboy cowboys and Indians movies that he likes to go see and so forth um, you know remember this is the late 40s um, and he's also he also makes a comment about how America is treating Japan like um, like a patronising ad- adult mm. and, a, and a stupid child who's co- sort of gone off the rails and needs to be brought back in line. So I don't think he, you know, he doesn't settle on anything. It's all kind of shifting. You know, we have mm. this notion of Japan and that shifts into another notion of Japan that seems equally kind of um, inadequate. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's quite interesting because when you're bringing up the, the, the grandson, um, I was actually thinking about the, the three films that the grandson loved or seemingly loved uh, which was the Lone Ranger, mm-hmm. um, Popeye, and then the middle one of, of that um, was—I uh, don't think it was clearly stated in the novel, but I think it's fairly clear that it's Godzilla yeah. that he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what interests me is that uh, the two American texts that the, the grandson love—he um, he heroized. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's a heroic figure for him. But Godzilla, he covers his face and doesn't want to see. It's almost like you know, he he doesn't want to see that. Japanese. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the only Japanese film in, in in the mixture there, and that's the one that he he's afraid of. Yeah. The one that, that he hides from, even though a part of him claims to love it. And there's almost an implied uh, fear of what American culture is mm. doing to Japanese culture at the same time. I mean, Godzilla is often criticised for being quite a a Western film in in its own right too. But and you see too in this book that. He's, he's aware of the kind of stereotyped perceptions. I mean, he's writing for a Western audience, right? Mm. He's writing in English. Um, he's aware of the kind of stereotyped perceptions of what Japan is and how certain places or certain aspects of Japanese culture buy into that, you know, mm. that kind of idea of, of Japanese people as, you know, or, or Japan in general as, like, um, these beautiful natural environments, mm. the bowing and all of this sort of stuff. Um, he's, he's, he's aware of, of the kind of... S- stupid 
stereotypes. There's quite flat stereotypes that we have, especially in something like American cinema. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a fourth film that's been implied in, in this, um, and it's either my fortune or curse for having watched too many Japanese films that um, I, I read this novel and suddenly all I could see was a, a black-and-white Japanese film, uh, in particular uh, Tokyo Story, mm. namely because of the names he had given his two daughters, Noriko and Setsuko. So um, Yasujiro Ozu, who's considered one of the greatest Japanese um, directors of all time, did a trilogy of film called the Noriko Trilogy, in which a daughter, the, be- the, you know, the best daughter, is always... Uh, there's always a, some sort of... Um, Conflict: The daughter has to remarry, has to marry or remarry, and leave the father behind. To some mm-hmm. nature, there's always a, a theme of that being played, and it's always Noriko, and it's always played by the same actress, and the same actress is Setsuko Hara. So there's that almost, seems really yeah the, very coincidental. It, it seems almost too coincidental <laughs> yeah. for me. So when I'm reading that, I thought, okay, so Noriko here is the daughter who has to get married. Yeah. Okay, so obviously we're playing with the whole Noriko trilogy here. Except the difference is that uh, in the Noriko trilogy, Noriko's a very uh, obedient, um, very loving daughter. You know, Noriko's yeah. always the daughter who loves her father very much and in a way doesn't want to uh, abandon her father. In fact, in one of the saddest of, of, of three trilogy, uh, the father has to, in a way, sacrifice himself in order to get his daughter to, to marry and get on with her life and yeah. sort of leave him to his loneliness. And it's this terrible scene at the end where he's peeling an apple and you just want to cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in this one, there's a strange sort of subversion happening because, yeah, Noriko is trying to get married, but she's trying to get married for her own happiness, mm. whereas the elder daughter, Setsuko, is already married, um, and there's a relationship between Setsuko Hara, the, the actress, and Yasujiro Ozu, the, the director as well. Oh, and, wow. and she plays a almost antagonistic but very polite role. So there's, yeah. I'm still trying to work through um, some of the ideas that he's, he's playing here, but there seems to be an implied Japanese aesthetic. Yeah. But it's a Japanese aesthetic that's um, influenced from a very Western perspective because Ozu uh, was always considered too Japanese for the West until he was introduced to the West and then they're like, they loved him. Mm. And they said, oh, no. He's, and, and now I think he's, um, he, he came second only to Hitchcock in the latest poll for the greatest director of all time. And... It's, it's, it's ironic in that sense because Ishiguro falls into that same sensibility. He has that very Japanese aesthetics, but there's a sort of Western sensibility at play here. Mm. And I can sort of see that conflict happening. Well, in, I mean, that's, that's kind of Ishiguro because he's, you know, he is of Japanese descent, but has lived most of his life, including most of his childhood, in, in um, Britain. Mm. So he, he's somebody that sits on both sides of that Western um, Japanese kind of divide. And, you know, he is writing for a Western reader. He is. Um, writing essentially mm. as a Western man, writing about Japan. Mm. Um, obviously, he has either privileged information and privileged kind of experience, but um, it, it's still, yeah, there's a kind of interesting mix, I think, there. But I, I think there's this sort of uh, sort of hesitation in, in, in a, a deliberate uh, hesitation to introduce uh, any sort of stance that might uh, suggest uh, a, a sort of a definitive right. Because I, I, th- I think about those films and I think they're actually violent films. 
you know, you know, the Lone Ranger. Oh yes, you yes, know, yes. Um, we yeah. No, 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 no. I was thinking, I was thinking about um, the child, and and I think that uh, you know, sort of, when you think through the the, the metaphor of, of of that floating world, mm. um, I, I think that there's there's a, there's a there's a sort of an insistence that we remember that the position that we're occupying. Now is um, as complicit with 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 sort of the the, the violence and the because you know in a sense uh, what we're sort of our instinct is to go well you were involved with a violent regime you bad man mm. um, and and I think that the, the the position that we all occupy is is far more um, one of complicity with whichever. Um, sort of violent regime is actually in play, and I mean, I think that he was also talk. I mean, Ishiguro was talking about the degree to which, uh, you know, sort of when he he was uh, when he was thinking through um, "Never Let Me Go," um, he acknowledged that absolutely there's a parallel. Uh, because he wasn't so much interested in the in the sort of the, the the sci-fi you know sort of aspect of it, but the degree to which it's it's that metaphor for the fact that we're constantly allowing huge proportions of the population to effectively be our you know sort of organ donors because the, you know so so much of the um, the, the, the the sort of the, the comforts that we exist with as our everyday are actually built on the exploitation of, you know, three quarters of the world. You know, that's even present in an artist of the floating world because as you were talking, I was thinking about the way that um, the narrator talks about his kind of artistic endeavours before the kind of rise of militarism and after because what he's doing really when he's in that kind of uh, floating world of decadence and partying is just um, painting prostitutes right and just in various forms of undress bathing and so forth um and it's it's a different kind of exploitation because he's just exploiting these women's bodies as, as a kind of art and you know fetishizing the idea of of the concubine and all of this and then he becomes a very different kind of a painter but is is this other kind of form of painting really so morally upstanding it's it's still built on the exploitation of people but this time it's built on the exploitation of women's bodies and as opposed to what it later becomes, which is military propaganda for the state. And there's also another question there too, isn't it, of complicity in what the state does. I mean, if, God forbid, Australia became some kind of military dictatorship tomorrow, like, do we do we toe the line and live or do we... Well, in some sense, we're complicit with so many sort of yeah. totalitarian policies yeah. right now. Exactly. But I, you know, exactly. I'm certainly not judging anybody. Well, no, I mean, exactly. I, I think that's actually one of the things that Ishikuro talked about. He said um, that when we look at the past, we always judge the decision the people made of the past. And we always said that uh, if we lived in that time, we would have done differently. Oh, and, that, and that's very comforting to us, isn't it? That's very oh, comforting. we would never do we that. We would never do that. Yes. But the truth is, we silly probably, old people. Yeah, yeah. most likely we would. You know, we don't yeah, know exactly. That's what exactly we would what I'm do. getting at. It's the yeah. moral high, high point that he's mm. absolutely ripping out from underneath our feet. And yeah. I, and it's I like think... that's moral. That's our moral kind of um, perspective on like things like the Holocaust. How could those people have ever let that happen? Mm. And he shows you exactly how that could happen. And he asks you think about if this was happening today, what would you do? Mm. Well, yeah, and and actually, parallels are happening today. Yeah, exactly. And what are, what and what are, are we doing? Nothing. Well, exactly. Actually, that that plays really interesting with an, an idea I've just recently. Um, I watched an interview with uh, Ishiguro recently, and he talked about 
um, an idea he has that he tries to insert into all his novel, uh, and he calls it the double-cross metaphor. <laughs> Have you guys heard of it? No. It's it's absolutely fascinating. I've never heard of it before, and I thought, wow, what an interesting idea. And the example he used was he said there was a film, and I cannot remember the name of the film for the life of me, but it it was a film about a Native American. uh, It's like a Western film with sort of Indians and cowboys fighting each other. Um, But it was read at the time because it was released in the 70s as a commentary on the Vietnam War. And he said for him that was a double-cross metaphor because, yes, it seems contextually and historically speaking to be about the uh, Vietnam War. But what if it was actually about what it says it's about, which is the <laughs> treatment of the Native American by yeah. the Americans themselves? Mm-hmm. So it's all, it acts as this double-cross metaphor. On the one hand, yes, there is that parallel to the Vietnam War, but there's also the deeper commentary on um, the, the mistreatment of, of Native Americans, which... In a way, it was actually it, it's it's a very clever device to use to talk about an unsavory issue, yeah, and hide it as a metaphor for and, another issue, and hide it under layers. Yeah, hide yeah. it under layers. And I thought that was so brilliant. And in a way, it perfectly encapsulates the type of world that he works and operates within. The Lone Ranger, yeah, you know, the companion. I mean, mm. there, there are just so many mm. ways of reading. Um, his deliver, you know that that decision to make um, the film the Lone Ranger because there's nothing innocent about um, the Lone the Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. He, Hi ho, Tonto. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Just, you know, making um, reading his his novels and thinking about his novels makes me feel a little bit smarter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like oh, it makes it, it makes it me, makes me feel wiser. I feel, I feel yeah. like a wise, you know, old man going. It just, oh. you, you think like he just he just puts <laughs> you in this mind frame where you so you become so thoughtful about what he's. What meditative, he's doing. almost. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 it's. I reckon it's good and, for the soul. And it is, and and I think about his work for you know months and months afterwards. So yeah, I'm still thinking about the Berry Giant now, and I've two years since I read it last. But it's it's one of those things that once you've read his books, they sort of stay with you. Yeah, they do much longer than almost any other author. And we read a lot. Of. All yeah. three of us read a lot, and so when a book stays with you, that's when you know it's doing yeah. well. I mean, like I, I I forget 99 percent of what I read yeah. because I just read. You know, like, and we talk about the day, remains you know? of the day. Yeah, we talk yeah. about the remains of the day as if we just read it yesterday. Yeah, and I probably yeah. haven't read it. I was in my twenties. Yeah. I was thinking okay. that's that's two decades ago. <laughs> yeah, it probably was, was more than ten years. Were, were you yeah. um, we've only got a few minutes to go. So, um, before we we wrap up for today, if you had to pick a, a Shiguro to recommend to our listeners, one only. Oh, that's an awful question. <laughs> which would you choose? I will go first. The remains of the day. It's a perfect novel. Well, that's not fair. I know it's not fair, but I never said things had to be fair. No, (laughs) no, I know because I think that would have been my my recommendation too. Well, you can recommend that too. Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd go for the remains of the day. See, I I want to give it uh, basically three strikes and say the remains of the the day as well. Um, But I'm always torn between the remains of the day and Never Let Me Go. Mm. I think Never Let Me Go was my first Ishiguro novel and it really opened my eyes to what literature yeah I did I did I read it when it first came out because there was a lot of buzz about this book and Mm. I'd never I mean I I knew about the remains of the day and I'd seen the film and you know Mm. and and I loved it but I thought I I should read his books and so when (laughs) Never Let Me Go came out yes I should and I I read it and I thought oh what a fool you've been why have you not read his (laughs) other books and so for me it's almost um there's a nostalgic element to it it was was my first issue (laughs) and I loved it so much uh, and it moved me in ways that I didn't think was possible to be moved. I mean, uh, it's one of those books, and a lot of these books are like, like that. Um, there are scenes where 
if I tell someone, I can't quite convey why it's so moving. Mm-hmm. And yet when I read the book, I'm basically, you know, weeping you know, almost <laughs> openly because I'm just so moved by a particular event, which is really almost um, just a mundane, ordinary event. But in the context of what yeah. is written is just so beautifully heartbreaking and it instantly made him a, a favourite of mine because I thought, I, I cannot believe someone can do that mm. with literature, can make such amazing things happen in such subtle and beautiful ways. I'm so. thinking too now that you're speaking about a certain scene in The Very Giant mm. quite close to the end. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. And, and that scene... I mean, if you described it to someone, it would sound stupid, know, but, but it's just so moving. I'm not going to spoil it yeah. in case people haven't read it. Um, well, we always say about Never Let Me Go is, is the scream. Mm. It's it's such a silly, ridiculous mm. thing, but you know, in that mm. in that context, I think it just it, it broke my heart. Mm. Um, but The Bearer Giant was another one. I'm also, after reading An Artist of the Floating World, I want to read his first book. Shame to admit, I haven't read the first one yet. I haven't read that either. Oh, great. Um, because I have a sneaking suspicion, and maybe this could be a a later project, research project of mine, that there's uh, there's a parallel between um, a, a pale view of hills and artists of the floating world and the remains of the day. His first three mm. works. He actually he actually says that um, you know, and, and I think people have spoken about the fact mm. that he writes the same book over and over again. Mm. And you know, in terms of when you think about memory, until the unconsoled came along, yeah. <laughs> I'm just then. well. I, I mean, it, it's still so very much about, uh, I guess, the the, the, the fragmented nature mm. of, of of our perception of the world. Because you know, it is it is mm. it, yes, it's much more um, postmodern and it's it's it overtly postmodern. I guess you know, sort of. It's, mm. But um, it, it, it's it's and it's it's a big book. And, I, you know, like it's a big fat book and it's quite dense. And, you know, so I guess there were lots of things that made people pull away from it because it didn't feel like a typical Ishiguru um, sort of uh, book in a sense. But, you know, it, it, it's it, it's exquisite. And you know, even though it was two decades ago, uh, I can still remember that image of, um, you know, sort of the, the pianist, uh, arriving at, at 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 the concert hall co- over and over again, you know, um, and 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 so yes, it, it it may be a more sort of challenging read for somebody who's looking for a, an Ishiguru, Ishiguru book, but um, still you've got that exploration of of, of the fragmentary nature of, of mm. existence. Which is interesting, you should say that because um, one of the things that Ishiguro has mentioned that it, um, one of his major influence or a lot of um, is Japanese cinema, in particular um, the works of Yasujiro Ozu, who I mentioned with the whole Tokyo story. Uh, but what Ozu does, and what has often been said about Ozu, is that he does the same film over and over and over again. And in fact, he names his character the same characters, but each one subtly that, a variation. Like a research project. Yeah. Yeah, of, yeah. We've given, yeah. we've accidentally told the entire world about Jimmy's next research project. Whoops! So much for <laughs> academic computer. Well, 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 what I was thinking was in particular because an artist of the floating world dealt with um, the role of an artist during times of war, times of crisis, whereas the remains of the day dealt with an ordinary, you know, a working class man yeah. again in the same environment, again with very similar implications that's happening mm-hmm. um, and. It's just such a beautiful exploration, both of them, yeah. um, about our role and our sense of identity within mm. these these world, and also playing with memory. I mean, there's, there's so memory much there. to me is this sort of the thing that the, the invisible thread that connects all of these. Mm. 
it just seems to be his major theme uh, to me. That's what strikes me is, is the connection between all of his books, especially, I mean, that's very much foregrounded in The Berry Giant, but mm. it's there, I think, in, in everything. I think so. I just feel that I just want to sort of lose myself in, in, in the fleetingness of everything. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we might lose ourselves in the fleetingness of, of existence and sign off for today. <laughs> so that's, I think, three very enthusiastic commendations to the Nobel Prize Committee. Thank you for making up for the extremely boring um, choice of last year and giving it to one of the finest novels work, uh, novelists working today in Kasuo Ishiguro. Um, thank you, Jimmy, for bringing your Kasuro fanboy um, to it. Thank you. And thank you, Michelle, as well, as always. And thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> thank you. Um, we will see you again in a week. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very helpful for helping other people to find the show. Um, please send any suggestions or feedback our way as well, through either through Apple Podcasts or through our website, which is at fromthelighthouse.org. If you agree that Ishiguro is wonderful, we'd love to hear from you. If you think that Bob Dylan was a great winner of the Nobel Prize and you wish to have a go at me, then... Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> or even suggest, you know, that could be a, yeah. another episode for us to discuss. Maybe we can all decimate Stephanie. Maybe for, we can all pick on content. Stephanie. <laughs> yes, that sounds like fun. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. See you.